CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. Thank you all for being with us today. You know, obviously, there's a lot of really hardcore politics in the news today, some of it very toxic. And we will get to that um, because it's important. The debt ceiling vote is coming up in uh, the House tonight. There's news about presidential candidates who are headed to Georgia in the week or so ahead, GOP candidates. Um, And uh, there's a lot more to talk about with our panel today. Um, But before I introduce them, let me just say, say just for a few minutes, I want to start on a very different note. Uh, We learned yesterday afternoon through an announcement by the Carter Center and by the Carter family that uh, former First Lady Rosalind Carter uh, has been diagnosed with dementia. Um, And I'll just read very briefly and then introduce the panel, the statement uh, from both Paige Alexander, the chief executive of the Carter Center, and also from the family itself. The family made the decision to announce this now. It aligned with her lifetime of selfless work, Paige Alexander said. They wanted to do this now to tell her story and to lead the conversation about dementia and about what caregiving means. The Carter family added that Rosalind is, quote, enjoying spring in plains and visits with her loved ones. And of course, we also know that Jimmy Carter uh, is at home in plains as well. Um, he, uh, in a few months ago now, I think it was his February, perhaps, uh, the announcement was made that he would no longer receive medical care for any of of the illnesses that confront him moving forward and that he is now in home hospice. So the Carters are at home. They've lived in the same house since 1961 and are the longest married uh, couple uh, in presidential political history. Um, Greg, when when, uh, Paige Alexander says that her diagnosis aligns with her lifelong her lifetime of selfless work, uh, she's talking about, of course, the fact that Mrs. Carter for many decades has dedicated herself to dealing with um, uh, helping people deal with mental illness, destigmatizing it. Uh, she's very committed to giving support to the caregivers of people who work with them, uh, people with mental illness and, and other illnesses as well. So that's what really Paige is talking about, Greg. Yeah, she had a mental health program at the Carter Center, which is hosts an annual symposium. Uh, they created a journalism fellowship to encourage more accurate reporting about mental health disease. They even wrote a book. Um, and, and something that the Carter Center uh, pointed out when they announced this um, the, this situation, I thought was so telling that Mrs. Carter often noted there are only four kinds of people in the world, those who have been caregivers, those who are currently caregivers, those who will be caregivers and those who will need caregivers. And that, that is, that is all of us. Mm-hmm. Greg Bluestein, of course, joins us. He's my partner on the Wednesday show from the AJC political reporter. Um, we're also joined by uh, Tanya Washington, uh, professor of law at Georgia state university. And Tanya, as we uh, introduce everybody, let me just give you a chance. You told us a really lovely story before the show started. You grew up in, Washington and were exposed to the Carter presidency. Uh, Share that with our listeners. Yeah, so I'm dating myself, but I was a young girl when um, President and Mrs. Carter were in the White House and they had a young daughter, um, Amy, and they sent Amy to D.C. public school. So that was a really big deal um, that they actually put their um, made family decisions for their daughter that were in line with their politics and support of public school education. And I am just so 
um, you know, I'm I'm saddened by the reality of, of the announcement, but I'm also encouraged and inspired by a wonderful legacy that this family has created that will serve people in Atlanta, the nation, and around the world. Tia Mitchell is the Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joins us. And Tia, you're getting set for what could be a long day and evening and a very toxic fight over the compromise measure to raise the debt ceiling. And, and, and so it seems, strikes me that you too, getting a chance to think about the legacy that we're going to have from Jimmy and Rosalind Carter is so different from what we're dealing with in the hardcore politics today. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, to put it in a wider perspective, I think it's interesting how we've been forced to reevaluate the Carter presidency. Um, we've had a long time to really gauge the impact, not just of uh, Jimmy Carter, but of Rosalind Carter and the fact that they had impact years decades even beyond their time in the White House. And I think that's something that presidents since have really considered. You know, um, I look at uh, George W. Bush, for example, who's had a chance to, you know, rethink, rebuild his legacy after the White House is in that same kind of vein. So it's really interesting uh, the lessons they've taught us, again, both while they were in Washington and beyond. Um, and we're also joined by uh, Karen Owen, longtime veteran political uh, 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 professor of political science at University of West Georgia, now has moved on to be the dean of two schools at the University of West Georgia. Uh, Karen, y your thoughts about um, learning the news about Rosalind Carter, but also the legacy that she's created. So when I heard the news, it, it definitely touched, as Greg mentioned, that we will all be affected in this caregiving role at some point. It also expressed to me how much the Carters have a love of humanity that they have worked since they left the White House to really promote different causes. And one is now telling their own personal journey and story through issues to share so that we all can kind of understand and, and really connect to them still. Um, it is, I think, one of the most remarkable moments of my life was meeting them in Plains and being able to attend a Sunday school lesson by President Carter and my children getting to meet them and how kind Rosalind Carter was to my children when they walked up for that picture and that moment. So I think I'll always have that impression that they loved people around them and they always wanted to be connected to others. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you all for that. I, I Very quickly, I'll add um, an observation. The last time I saw um, President and Mrs. Carter was actually at a church service at Ebenezer Baptist Church. It was a few years ago, and they had brought the whole family together for a weekend of activity in Atlanta, including a Sunday service at Ebenezer ba Baptist. And um, President Carter and I got a moment to, to talk, and he was very kind in remembering that we had, I'd covered him uh, uh, quite a few times. And, and it was very sweet of him. He took me over to say hello to Mrs. Carter. And, and it was clear even then that she was starting to experience difficulties because he had to explain to her, remind her, do you know this is Bill Nygut? Do you remember him from this and that? And, and so for a while now, I've, I've felt this um, sense of uh, sadness about what happens as we age, but also an awareness that the two of them together continue to be together in that house in Plains. So we're thinking about you, President and Mrs. Carter. And by the way, the Carter Center has set up a website where you can leave messages for the Carters. And uh, Chase and Natalie tell me they're going to uh, tweet that out, so you can, the link to that, so you can use it if you want to send a message. All right, um, let's move on, Tia. I will start with you on this. Um, yesterday, the House Rules Committee, after some wrangling, voted out the uh, compromise that the White House and Speaker McCarthy had put together on the deal to raise the debt 
ceiling. It was a contentious uh, committee meeting, but it now comes to the floor uh, tonight, and there seems to be a growing right-wing Republican rebellion, which includes Georgians, Andrew Clyde, and Mike Collins, right? Yes. I don't know about growing, though. I think it seems like they might have hit their ceiling. Now, it's not a small Mm. number. Um, There are some reporters Mm. who've been trying to keep a tally of the lawmakers who have publicly said they'll oppose the deal. And it topped out around 30 or so with a few kind of undecideds in there. Um, so it's not it's not insignificant. But at the end of the day, the the majority, uh, probably maybe two, three fourths of the Republicans in the House are expected to support the bill when it comes to the floor. Again, first, there is a procedural vote, as you mentioned, on the rule. Mm -hmm. And then once, if and when that passes, which it might need some Democrats to pass, that's what makes the rule kind of tough. Usually on contentious legislation, the rule, which again is a procedural vote, it's passed by the majority. So the fact that this rule is going to need some Democrats, most likely, that's what makes it a little tough. But once we get past the rule, which we expect will happen, then it will set up about an hour of debate. Now, that's a House hour. That's not your clock hour. That hour will probably be two hours which for reasons that I won't get into. But once we get past that quote unquote hour of debate, um, then there will be that final vote. We think it'll be around eight or 8.30. Karen, I mentioned on the show yesterday, and I'd love to get your take and the takes of the the others on the panel, um, that there are things about looking over this uh, compromise that McCarthy and uh, the Biden uh, team put together that it feels to some extent like an optical illusion uh, in, the, in the sense that there are aspects of what they've done that seem to give each side some of what they say they want, but if you really look a little deeper, doesn't give them that. So I think the perfect example of that is the work requirement for food stamps. Um, there is going to be a work requirement, and there are some Democrats who are upset about it, for people in the age range in their 50s. Um, but in the long run, it's the, the, the requirement for food stamps is being loosened for other people, including veterans. And in the long run, it, it's going to increase federal spending for food stamps by some $2 billion. So a lot of this feels like we're going to try to give the base something they can claim they've won a victory on. But maybe not so much. Well, I think in this negotiation, each side wanted something to take ba- back to the base to, a- to actually talk about they were mm-hmm. successful in some part of the negotiation. <clears throat> so, for instance, the Republicans will talk about this as a suspension, right? This is not raising the debt ceiling. So there's semantics in how they're going to talk to their base and their supporters about what they did. As far as the food stamp part, what we see is not a clean legislative bill that's just dealing with the debt ceiling or dealing with budgetary matters. This is truly dealing now with policy when we're actually imposing some work requirements Mm. on the food stamps. And you're right, there is this tweak of, yes, the Republicans are going to be able to share that they got this work requirement, but the Democrats are going to talk about that there's an expansion of the food stamp for others that will need the federal assistance. So both sides have come to negotiations to get something, and now they have pieces to talk about. But truly, for the American public, right, we're confused. We thought we were just talking about debt ceiling (laughs) and is it going to be raised or not. And now we're hearing all these other components that come in, which then kind of muddies the water, and it gives each side something to kind of hang their hat on and be a little bit happy that they had something to win. Greg, jump in. You know, this has become a, a litmus test for Speaker McCarthy's leadership, too. Um, right now, it looks like he's inching closer toward a deal. Uh, but all these defections from conservatives, including two from Georgia that he has been covering and tracking very closely, spells trouble for the rest of his term. You know, if, if he can't get this deal done, 
then how do you get other substantive packages through Congress? It raises mm -hmm. doubts about whether you can pass even simple legislation because it's not just a, a, a threat of rebellion. There is an open revolt going on right now in Congress. And there's even at least one Republican defector has called for Speaker McCarthy's gavel. You know, and I, and I don't know if that ends up becoming a, a trend, uh, and Tia can speak to that. Um, but Republicans, there's a concern among these hardline Republicans that they're squandering their chance for more substantive changes in in exchange for more milder, you know, rollbacks. Tia? Yeah, I wanted to uh, build on what Greg was saying about the threats to Speaker McCarthy's leadership. I will say that right now, the tenor from Republicans, I think there was some reining in of those hard right members. They had a press conference Tuesday morning where they talked about their opposition to the bill. Afterwards, of course, a lot of members of the media were asking them what it means for McCarthy's leadership, and they were kind of raising some concerns. I think <clears throat> over the course of Tuesday, they were told to dial that back down and at least get through a vote. Um, you know, to focus on the main thing. Um, and so that being said, a lot of those members are not happy, but I think they've decided to hold their fire until everything is said and done tonight. I talked with Representative Clyde at length about it, and he said, you know, I'm not ready to say that I want to get rid of McCarthy. Remember, Clyde was one of those people, 14 rounds, he did not support Kevin McCarthy. Only in that 15th and final round that came with all these deals and assurances did he vote to make McCarthy speaker. And he told me, I'm not ready to say I want to vote for a motion to vacate uh, the speakership, have him leave the speakership. But he said the trajectory doesn't look good. He said he's looking for other things that could turn this around, such as amendments. Well, Rules Committee didn't add those amendments. So people like Andrew Clyde are unlikely to be happy with how things end up tonight. But the question is, will they then want to move forward with these more formal measures uh, going after McCarthy? Yeah, we have to remember that in, in his deal to finally win enough votes to become speaker after that long campaign, uh, he agreed to uh, uh, snap votes on, on his speakership. It only takes one member to call the question of whether he should continue as speaker. You know, Tanya, so if you're not a political junkie and you happen to tune into this show, you think you might be thinking to yourself, I, all of this back and forth, the Republicans, the Democrats, these are political games that are just, they're operating at some place that I don't want to have anything to do with. Tell me what this means to me as an individual. And when it comes right down to it, it is the bottom line on whether or not you reach an agreement that matters most. We've talked about it on the show before. If they don't raise the debt ceiling, if the government goes into default, it could mean Medicare would be uh, payments would be in trouble. Medicaid, Social Security payments could be suspended. IRS might not be able to send back uh, tax uh, refunds for a considerable period of time. This has real human consequences. And all of the rest of this feels like playing with fire to uh, people who aren't interested in the political gamesmanship. Absolutely, Bill. I mean, you read my mind. I mean, the, the bottom line is we probably are going to end up with something that um, both sides can claim victory for, as, as Karen said. But it makes our um, legislative process and members of our federal legislature look incredibly reckless and disorganized, not just to the American public, but also to the world that is watching this chaos, that we actually came to the brink of disaster before we were able to hash something out. So I think people may not understand all the details, but they are concerned that the process looks very messy. Um, and that that we narrowly avoided a disaster. I thought it was interesting that McCarthy in the negotiations um, has described uh, President Biden as very smart and very tough. 
which is not consistent with kind of the talking points of his party about Biden not being all there and being too old to run for president. Um, clearly, he was a shrewd negotiator. And, and I think McCarthy having to acknowledge that publicly probably didn't endear him to his uh, party yeah. uh, partners. <laughs> Um, Karen, you hit on, I think, a really important point that I don't want to uh, uh, leave uh, unsaid. Um, this is really about raising the debt ceiling. This is about agreeing uh, to allow the Treasury to spend more money to pay for expenditures that the government has already made and that have already been approved, or rather not made yet, but that have been approved and now need to be uh, paid and and of course it raises the real question. And in, instead of that, it's the debt ceiling issue has become about how much can I get in terms of policy, as you pointed out, um, and other matters that aren't related to the basics of just adding more money, giving the Treasury uh, Department more power to pay its bills. Yes, that's correct. I mean, there's no simple, Tanya mentioned, Tia mentioned this legislative process, right? There's a lot going on, procedural votes and everything. And it used to be that the, the Congress handled budgets through the 12 appropriation bills. Now, for years, we've been doing these omnibus packages where there's all this, you know, other policy pieces being brought in because representatives are seeking to get reelected. They need to go back to their district. They need to be talking about the work that they've been doing. And part of it is not that we passed a clean budget or we raised the debt ceiling to make sure that the federal government can pay its bills, but it's, hey, we got this for you. We are doing this to change the way government operates or is providing for you. So part of it is just really this drive to get reelected and to show your your constituents that you're working for them. And so it makes the process get muddied and messy because so many interests are involved instead of just as simple, hey, we're going to pay our bills. We're going to pass legislation to make sure we're paying the bills and doing our proper job as the government to take care of our people. Greg, before we leave this subject, you you spend an awful lot of your time looking at elections, covering elections, um, and the dynamics leading up to them. How do you, at this point, see the negotiations, how McCarthy did, how Biden did, as playing out in terms of winners and losers? You know, it's going to be interesting watching what happens in the in next year's Republican primaries, because you can already see it's being used as a litmus test. Some of the conservative groups like Club for Growth are using it, or they're saying they could use it as part of their scoring metrics, which could lead to some Republican challengers. I can think of a few in Georgia who are already kind of circling Buddy Carter, for instance, down in down yeah. in uh, uh, coastal Georgia, um, who could be going after Austin Scott or other, uh, Drew Ferguson, other more mainstream Republicans. I don't know if it'll be um, an issue that, that they're really concerned about at this point next year, because so many other things will have happened between now and then. And of course, we're also looking at how Democrats respond, because, you know, it looks like a few dozen Democratic votes will be needed to get this thing passed. Um, House leaders promised at least 150 Republican votes. That's not going to get them across the finish line. And progressives are particularly upset about some of the provisions in this in this measure, including new work requirements for social safety net programs, and uh, that that move to expedite a gas pipeline. Um, so both those issues you're going to play in, and both those issues could factor into primaries next year. Yeah, the gas pipeline as a uh, as a gesture to Joe Manchin to get his support at once thing moves to the Senate. Um, Tia, last word on this. Um, it, it is interesting that, uh, I, to the best of my knowledge, you haven't heard any Democrats in the Georgia delegation express an unwillingness to support the bill. They may not be happy with everything, but have you heard any revolt uh, from Democrats in our delegation? Yeah, Democrats have been much more measured. We have that Congressional Progressive Caucus, which is the more left-leaning arm of the Democratic conference. Um, both representatives Hank Johnson and Nakima Williams in Georgia are a member of that caucus. But 
neither one of them have said, hey, I can't support the legislation. To your point, they don't like everything in it, particularly the work requirements. Their chairwoman, uh, Pramila Jayapal, has talked about that. But even she has been hesitant to just say, but we won't, I won't vote for it. Um, but we'll see. Um, so far, AOC is the one, um, I think there are a couple of Democrats, AOCs, one of them who's been a no, but none from Georgia yet. Um, that's how they stand. And I want to, I, I just wanted to last word say part of that is because at the end of the day, there is the politics, but there is a default, an international financial crisis that if this bill doesn't pass today, it has to pass today because it's got to go to the Senate. And right now the markets are, we don't want a weekend of uncertainty ahead of that June 5th current deadline for defaults. So there's bigger things that members are keeping in mind, Republicans and Democrats, as they say, I'm going to hold my nose and support this legislation. All right, let's do this. Um, let's get to our first break of the show. We've got a lot more to talk about on Political Rewind. We'll let the debt ceiling uh, negotiations uh, go for today. We'll come back to them tomorrow once the votes are taken tonight. But uh, let's move on and talk about other subjects after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. The AJC's Greg Bluestein and Tia Mitchell, Karen Owen of the University of West Georgia, and Tanya Washington, professor of law at Georgia State University, join us today. Hey, Tanya, I want to ask you a quick question, if I may, uh, as professor of law. It's off, off the topic. It wasn't on the list, but I'm interested in your take. We're about to head into June. The Supreme Court 2022-2023 term will soon end, and big rulings are about to be uh, 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 released. Just give me one example of a ruling you're really watching for and perhaps concerned about, and then we'll move on. So my career started um, in terms of my research around affirmative action and diversity as a um, pedagogical necessity um, for higher ed and K through 12. And I'm waiting to see what the court is doing. I'm pretty sure um, just based on the oral arguments and kind of the ideological composition of the court, that a majority of the justices will vote um, to invalidate the use of race in admissions. And that will be both at public institutions and private institutions. Now, how broad that decision will be is what I will be paying attention to. And so, um, Karen, as a double dean, you know, I know that university administrators are going to be like trying to figure out how do we implement this seismic shift in admissions practices so that um, it is aligned with what I would characterize as a very disappointing decisions. I think we're going to end up with majority white classrooms, and I think that's going to be harmful for all students who won't get the benefit of heterogeneity in, as part of their learning experience. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up because I do think the justices in the arguments made it clear they don't like the continuation of race as a uh, one factor in admissions. And by the way, Karen, as you know, one of the reasons that Tanya says this is both going to affect private and public institutions is because the case is brought by a private and public institution. This is the University of North Carolina and Harvard who have uh, went to the court and said, we uh, want a ruling because we want to continue you being able to use race in some way. But Karen, I, what Tanya just raised is really interesting. You're going to have to be with all your other deans and administrators looking carefully at whatever comes out of this. 
Absolutely. This will be a major effect to our enrollment and management, uh, how we are recruiting students, how we are analyzing those we're bringing in. And I would say be mindful, too, that we're facing in the next 10 years just an enrollment decline across higher ed because there's just fewer students who will be wanting to attend or can't are, you know, wanting to go into uh, different fields in higher education. So we are all as public and private universities trying to grab these students uh, and get them to our universities. And so it's going to affect a lot of the decisions that we have to make as we're getting ready to enroll new students each year. Okay, thank you for uh, taking on that additional topic, uh, both of you. Greg, let's turn to uh, the Republican State Convention, which is coming up next weekend, June not Friday, June 9th. And then I think Saturday the 10th is the big day of business. But we do have some presidential candidates, including Donald Trump, uh, heading here. You've reported on on uh, Trump. Who else do you expect to be uh, at that convention? Well, Bill, we have some late breaking news. Um, Mike Pence, yeah. the former vice president, was supposed to give the uh, the keynote speech on Friday, the the the, the first day of that two day event uh, that will be next week, so June 9th. Uh, but he has canceled. He has canceled because of a of what David Schaefer, the party chair, says of a televised national town hall at which he will be making an announcement regarding his future plans. Um, I tweeted that out recently, and I'm already getting texts from people saying they don't know about that tele- televised town hall. So maybe there's some news. Uh, within that news, but we'll 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 monitor that. But in his stead, Carrie Lake, the former Arizona gubernatorial candidate, will be the keynote speaker now on June 9th. She, of course, refused to concede her 2020 defeat in Arizona, and she's become a favorite of Trump loyalists and is seen as a potential vice presidential candidate. And the other big one, of course, is the former President Trump, who will speak. We're expecting him to speak June 10th the Saturday, the second day of that convention. Uh, a number of other candidates are speaking to um, Vivek Ramaswamy speaking, Asa Hutchinson, the former Arkansas governor, and then a, a, a number of, of Georgia elected officials uh, are, are also speaking at that event. But of course, one of them will not be Governor Brian Kemp, who is boycotting along with some other of his allies. Well, all right, Greg. So I'm going to ask you another question and then bring the rest of the panel in on this. It's fascinating that Mike Pence has decided a week ahead of time that he's got other things to do. Because as we all know, there's a major split in the Republican ranks here in Georgia. Governor Kemp has said, I'm not going to have anything to do with them. I'm raised, I've created my own leadership uh, giving a, a, a PAC. I have a national PAC now. I'm not going to the convention. Chris Carr isn't going uh, to the convention. And increasingly, the state party looks like a far right, uh, pro MAGA a group of Republicans. So here's my question for you: Has Mike Pence really come to the conclusion, as apparently has Nikki Haley, that showing up with that group is going to alienate them from Governor Kemp, and they don't need that trouble? Look, we know that the former vice president is a close ally of Governor Kemp. Obviously, Pence came to town last year around this time to endorse Brian Kemp um, and directly snub, rebuke his former political boss, Donald Trump, who was backing David Perdue's primary challenge. So there's a, there's a history there. Um, there's a lot entangled in, in this. Nikki, Nikki Haley, as you mentioned, is not speaking at the convention. She is also has more ties to establishment Republican leaders. She was also a Brian Kemp supporter. So we're not sure why those two are specifically not showing up at the Georgia GOP convention because other candidates are also not, uh, some who are, are more aligned with the Trump factions. Um, but it is interesting that David Schaefer in his email said, Pence canceled, quote, because of a televised national town hall at which he will be making an announcement regarding his future plans. That's from David Schaefer. Immediately, t- I tweeted this in mid-show, and I got texts from National Democrats and some Republicans saying, we didn't know about an announcement from, from Mike Pence. So, so that I, I do not closely follow every twist and turn of Mike Pence's campaign, so I can't speak to that. But again, there might be a little bit news there, or this might just be a way to, um, uh, you know, to cover up Mike Pence's uh, cancellation. Uh, Tio, it, it, all of this just goes to the point that Georgia truly has become one of the most crucial states in national politics. Absolutely. And I, I, 
it's it's a crucial stop. It's an important stop. But I think we also can't ignore, as Greg has so uh, deftly pointed out, that the Georgia Republican Party is becoming pretty MAGA. It's becoming, you know, a party where not all the speakers that are planned for the convention next month are are election denial denialists, if you will, but election deniers. But the fact that Carrie Lake is being given a primetime keynote slot, um, I think there are a lot of Republicans in Georgia who think um, she's not a winning message for Republicans in Georgia anymore. Um, They don't have control over the state party as long as David Schaefer and people who agree with him remain chair. Um, So I think it's going to continue to highlight a rift between Republicans Um, the state party and those who believe that the message that the leaders of the state party are pushing isn't a winning message in Georgia, which is why people like Governor Kemp are staying away. Karen, uh, it is news, uh, however big, that that Pence is canceled. But I think it's even bigger news that the party has decided, David Schaefer's decided to turn to Carrie Lake the MAGAist of all candidates in the 2022 election cycle, who has followed the Trump playbook of challenging her loss through the courts in Arizona. She's been rebuffed by every court she's gone into. Um, what a strange and interesting choice to cement the fact that the state party is increasingly a far right wing party. I definitely think it does make the statement that the state GOP is still in a Trump camp. They're not letting that go. And I think it's a clear message, too, that Pence and others who, as Greg mentioned, have been aligned with Kemp are maybe looking at this presidential run if they do. Uh, for instance, for Pence, for for certain, if he does decide to run, that they need to look at a Kemp playbook. How do you win in a battleground state? Kemp won, not Carrie Lake. She didn't win in Arizona. And so for them to not be at this state GOP convention says to me that they are also thinking long term, because if you're going to win the presidency on this ticket, you have to be able to play in the battleground states and you have to have a message that resonates across the middle, getting back some moderate Republicans and grabbing some moderate Democrats that find your message on the economy or others to be appealing to them. And so I think Carrie Lake is a, is a definite unique news choice. I mean, news breaking a statement there on a choice, but, um, but I think it'll show again that Columbus will be highlighted in the national news, right? That some of these conservative radio, the far right will speak heavily about what's happening in Georgia as a picture to Georgia, but really probably not what's happening on the ground um, amongst the voters in our state. Tanya, I think that Karen makes a really good point. Uh, if, if you're a, uh, a, a, a voter, an independent voter in Georgia, um, heading toward 2024 elections as, as a voter, and you look at how the state Republican Party is putting together its convention, um, it strikes me that they are offering you very little room to want to uh, uh, vote for their candidates in 2024. Now, there's a long time to go before the election. Many things can happen. People can can change and moderate to some extent between the primary and the general. Nevertheless, it's not starting off as a convention that has a whole lot for independent voters to hold on to. So, Bill, it definitely makes a statement, but and I don't think many people would describe you as an optimist, but the fact that you think there's still independent voters out there is so cute. (laughs) (laughs) But there are independent voters, aren't there? Swing voters? I I hope so. Um, But I think, you know, it seems in Georgia and in other places that the parties have decided that they are going to um, take the approach of like appealing to their base or what their perceived base is. And that's going to leave people in the middle on both parties and independent voters to the extent that they exist um, with some hard choices to make um, between now and the actual general election. Greg, why don't you give, give me your thoughts on, on what I proposed there. 
Well, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. Um, but, you know, it, it is interesting to, to watch how the Georgia GOP is struggling right now. Um, they are, uh, you know, they're they're battling irrelevance on the state level, but also continuing to be a magnet uh, for for Trump loyalists. And, and one example that just unfolded earlier today, when Governor Brian Kemp has used his special fundraising committee, it's called a leadership committee that can raise unlimited money. Um, he used it. Uh, he's using he's spending uh, six figures from his account uh, to target vulnerable Democratic mm-hmm. legislators and protect vulnerable Republican incumbents. This is a job, excuse me, this is a job that the Georgia GOP would once fill. That was a void that the state party once would would take care of. And now in this situation, we're now seeing Governor Kemp kind of run a parallel structure. And so we'll see how it all plays out next weekend. Clearly, of course, it still has some national power. um, But in Georgia, um, you know, Governor Kemp is moving to fill that void. It is interesting, uh, Tia, that um, here we are in May, way before uh, uh, the next year's election cycle, and and Kemp is already identifying uh, Democrats uh, who are incumbents who he would like to see defeated and starting to put money uh, toward an effort to run them out of office. Um, I'm a little cynical here. Not that I, I think... Kemp wants these Democrats out of office, but I think he also wants to signal to Georgia and beyond that he's a player, that he has money to spend and he's willing to spend it, that uh, he wants to be part of the conversation, not just as the governor, but as a Republican leader who has his fingers on the pulse and can impact elections. So to me, this is not just about targeting these individuals. It's about sending a message, again, not just in Georgia, but beyond Georgia, that Governor Kemp is a player, a leader in the Republican Party. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show. Uh, Well, let me mention, uh, Greg, you uh, reported on this. Let me just mention the five Democratic incumbents who apparently uh, uh, Kemp is uh, targeting. Michelle Au of Johns Creek, um, Jasmine Clark of Lilburn, Nabila Islam of Lawrenceville, Josh McLaurin of Sandy Springs. Am I missing anybody, Greg? I'm looking at it again. Uh, Farouk Mughal of Decula. De- uh, of Decula. And Jasmine Clark of Lilburn. Did you say that? Yeah. So those are yeah. the five. And then he's he's looking to protect six Republican incumbents, all in the House. Scott Hil- Hilton of Petrie Corners, Deborah Silcox of Sandy Springs. We know she might be the most vulnerable of them. Matt Reeves of Duluth. Lauren Daniel of Locust Grove, Mike Chiokas down in Sumter County in Americas, and Gerald Green of Cuthbert. Those latter two, Chiokas and Gerald Green, both represent rural districts, but they're uh, they're heavily minority and they're they're, they're very swingy. Uh, Democrats have eyed those districts for, for now for years and have been unable to flip them. Karen, before I get to a break, I think Tia makes an important point. Uh, there's no question Brian Kemp is looking to be a kingmaker whether it's in state politics or perhaps in national politics as well. Oh, yes. He still wants to be in the headlines of the news right now, right? Because Sessions behind. He signed all the bills, so he's got to stay relevant and be a part of it. And I think a lot of this is using his leadership pack to talk about how he can help races and stay in the conversation, especially if he doesn't want to actually run for president, be be considered a, a vice presidential running mate. He's got to stay in the conversation. Interesting of the list of the Democrats that are vulnerable and the Republicans that he's trying to help, Kemp is trying to help. Those are all situated in that Gwinnett, North Fulton Mm -hmm. area, which is a swing area. So to Tanya's point, there may be some independents. And if there are any, they may be in those areas. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Thank you all for uh, that conversation. We got to get to our final break of the show. We'll be back with more in a moment. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. 
Greg Bluestein, I, I think the bosses at the AJC correctly decided to uh, send you on the uh, trip to Israel with Governor Kemp. At the same time, I also congratulate you on getting them to do that so you could be on the trip. Um, and, and I want to ask you to give us a little uh, insider uh, information about what you found there. To what extent was this a trade mission? And to what extent did Governor Kemp make connections that will help the economy eventually here in Georgia? And to what extent is this the governor trying to raise his profile again as a national uh, leader? You know, I think this is a little bit of both. Every single one of these trade missions kind of mixes business with politics. And of course, there's some sightseeing because you're in a foreign country and there's things to see there. And so this was a little bit of everything. Um, you know, the last time I was in Israel, I was actually with Governor Nathan Deal. 2014, and he was in the middle of a re-election campaign. And so politics played largely into that because he was running against Jason Carter, the then state senator, who was the grandson of a Jimmy Carter, who has a famously uh, strained ties, I guess I could say, with with uh, with some Jewish voters over his stance on Middle East peace and, and, uh, and Israeli policy. And so that was an undercurrent of that trip. And this trip of course, Governor Kemp is not in the middle of a re-election bid. He has safely been re-elected uh, to a second term, so he doesn't have the election to worry about, but he is now seen as a national candidate. And one of the standout moments of that trip was when he sat down in three separate meetings with three of Israel's top leaders, President Isaac Herzog, uh, the Foreign Minister Eli Cohen, and then, of course, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And it was not lost on anyone that Netanyahu carved out about an hour of time to meet with Governor Kemp and his top and some of his top uh, allies um, in Israel. This was not in a quiet period in Israeli politics. There was it, we were talking about our own kind of debt ceiling crisis. Israel was in the middle of its own very very tortured budget debates, where the future of Netanyahu's government, his very his very delicate coalition, was hanging in the balance at this moment in, in Netanyahu's in an hour-long meeting with the governor of Georgia. And the reason why, everyone could speculate, the real, but the reason why is he's now seen as a national candidate. He could be he could be a, a VP contender next year, but he certainly could be uh, a U.S. Senate candidate in 2026, but he could be talked about as a presidential timber 2028, 2032, who knows? And so Netanyahu is using that opportunity to impress Governor Kemp with his view of foreign policy. So there's that. There's also a number of business meetings all over the country, from the Negev Desert in the south to the, the hills of Nazareth uh, in the northern part of the country. Um, some of these companies have minor investments in Georgia, 100 jobs here or there. Some of them have more significant investments, but they were treated to site visits by the governor. And there was uh, military briefings at the famed Iron Dome anti-missile site touring of a highly fortified cybersecurity center in, in the tech hub of Beersheba in the middle of the desert, um, where I think Georgia officials really see the possibility of a lot of synergy um, because of their own Augusta University Cyber Center and the, and the areas out there in Augusta that, that Georgia is trying to build up. Um, and it was the governor's first trip to Israel. And so uh, he went to the old city of Jerusalem, uh, Yad Vashem, the, the, the Holocaust Memorial Museum. He, he called one of the most moving experiences of his life uh, and there was visits to famed churches in Nazareth as well. Karen, it uh, Greg, Greg reported, and I thought it was important, that in the conversation with Prime Minister Netanyahu, Netanyahu asked him uh, about the bill in the legislature this session that passed the House, failed in the Senate, that would in fact, uh, was designed to uh, uh, try to uh, define anti-Semitism and therefore uh, cut back on the increasing number of anti-Semitic events that we've seen in the state. It was an interesting conversation to bring up, especially though it, it pays that the prime minister was paying attention and, or had advisors letting him know about Georgia politics and very specific pieces of legislation here to talk to uh, the governor about. I think it's interesting that the governor's response coming from his advisors too is that the General Assembly will be back in session in 2024 and that this can be uh, brought back forth from the House and then pushed for the Senate. Uh, again, I think it's to Greg's point, this is both political and economic because the governor also shared with these leaders that Georgia is the number one place to do business, which is a definite campaign slogan he's still continuing to share. Um, but you're right that this piece of legislation uh, will have to have some ground and encouragement, I think, from the governor's office next year if it wants to move through both chambers. 
Tia, is there chatter about Kemp on the Hill among uh, people beyond uh, Georgia? Is, is he somebody they talk about at all? Um, I will say that I think there are national Republican figures who see him as a rising star. Um, they see what he was able to accomplish in Georgia. But I think Kemp is taking a different approach than some of these other governors who, you know, quite frankly, he has a national profile because of the election denialism of 2020, but he's not taking advantage of it to put himself right now in the conversation for 2024. Greg can correct me, but it seems like he's not angling for 2024, at least right now. It looks like he's looking at serving out his term, looking at 2026 or beyond. So I think Kemp, it's almost, it seems like it's Kemp's decision not to make himself more of the conversation. Um, I think he could if he wanted to be, especially when you look at other governors who don't have, um, who have lesser of a profile, who are putting themselves out there. Um, that being said, I think when Kemp decides to go there, they'll be ready to welcome him with open arms. Mm. Uh, Tanya, before we run out of time, this was a, uh, Greg already mentioned it to some extent, but this was a very politically fraught time in Israel for Kemp to be visiting. It's far more than uh, the things that Greg talked about. It's the efforts by the ultra-Orthodox to have more and more power in the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, Netanyahu has encouraged them because he's formed a coalition with them. There could have been some traps he could have fallen into, but he seemed to avoid them. Absolutely. Just like to Tia's point, he avoided traps during in the wake of the the presidential uh, election with all of the behavior that now has uh, former President Trump in trouble. So he's clearly an astute politician. Um, and I think pe that is being recognized across the state and across the nation. Tanya Washington gets the last word in today's show. Tanya, thank you so much for being with us. Tia Mitchell, I hope the day goes well for you on the Hill. Karen Owen, Greg Bluestein, thank you all so much for being with us for today's show. We're back with a brand new Political Rewind tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nigat. Take care, stay healthy, and yes, I'll say it, be kind to one another. Bye, everybody.